Hey, did you ever say this to your kids, or did your parents ever say it to you? Something that goes like this. You know, if you keep crossing your eyes like that, they're just going to get stuck there one day. You ever say that? Or, or how about something like this? Hey, you know, if you swallow that, that uh, stick of chewing gum, it's going to be in your stomach for seven years. That's how long it's. Did you ever say something like that? Or hey, if you swim right after you eat, you're going to get a cramp and drown. Or hey, if you eat too much chocolate, you're going to get acne. If you keep cracking your knuckles, you're going to get early arthritis. If you sit that close to the TV for a long time, you're going to go blind. You ever say that one? Or hey, don't touch that toad because if you do, you're going to get warts. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. They're called myths. There's no truth to any of that as far as I can tell, but they're all myths. And myths are something that are not true at all. But it seems like a lot of people believe them anyway. You know, myths have been around for generations. In fact, um, some of these popular myths is what even uh, was the source behind a very popular show on the Discovery Channel. Maybe you've seen it. It was called Mythbusters. Anybody watch that? Yeah, many of us, it's Mythbusters. It was just a show where these two guys, you know, they tested uh, scientifically these popular myths. Some of them turned out to be more than myths. They became, they were true, but many of them were just myths. Well, you know what I want to do this weekend? I would like for us to bust a popular myth. I would like for us to, to examine one of these myths that many people believe and, and to show it today that it truly is just a myth. But even though it's not true, many in our country have bought into this. They believe it. And sadly, even many Christians have also believed this myth. It's the myth that says, the more that we have, the happier we will be. It's the myth that also says that the more that we can get and the more that we can keep, the more fulfilled we will be. Did you bring your Bible this morning? Would you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and would you also open Deuteronomy chapter 17? We're going to be in both places today. 2 Samuel 12 and Deuteronomy chapter 17. And while you're finding those, let me just refresh your memory that we are in a series right now called Too Much. And what we're doing together is we are studying four biblical principles together that if you'll take them to hearts, they can revolutionize your understanding of what you have and where it came from and why you have it to begin with. We're pursuing these, these four biblical truths to gain understanding and to see money and wealth the exact same way that God sees it. Because when I think we're done, we're going to have a good understanding of this subject, what the Bible says. And I hope that you would agree with me that don't we want to see money and wealth the same way that God sees it? Isn't that how you want to? I want to see it the same way that God sees it. So I believe that these four biblical principles will help us do that. Now, if you're here last weekend, then hopefully you went home with a copy of this. And I know that uh, we ran out, so I know a lot of you didn't get them, but we reordered the books. And so my understanding is we still got plenty out there. So uh, if, uh, we'd love for you to go home with this book called Too Much, Living with Less in the Land of More. It was written by a pastor named Gary Johnson. He's an incredible preacher. And uh, what he has done is he has written a book about these four biblical principles that I'm preaching about on, uh, on Sunday mornings, but he's also added to it more than that. He's added these four practices. Now, some of you have reached out to me this week, and you, you've asked me this question. Hey, what's the best way to read this book? 
Well, you know, um, I think really you could read it a number of ways. And what I mean by that is you can just open it up, start at the beginning, and start reading cover to cover. It's, it's a very easy read. Gary uh, has a great writing style with lots of stories and illustrations. And you'll find that you'll probably work through it pretty quickly. I think many of you might be able to just sit down in an hour or two and probably work your way through it. That, that's one way. But if you want to kind of stay in step with the preaching, and you say, hey, I only want to read the part that applies to the sermon, or what applies to my life group, then I would say you could read it this way. Gary outlines four biblical principles. These are the same four that I'm preaching on. But he also adds four practices to each of these principles. So, so if you look at the, the, front, the front page here, um, principle one and practice one, they can go together. So if you want to read the first one and then skip to the next part where it's the practice, you can do it that way. So today, uh, we're talking about the principle of contentment. And then there's the practice of saving that goes with it. So you can read it that way and come in pre preparation for each message. It really, I don't know if it matters a whole lot. You do it however way you are comfortable with. The important thing is we'd like for you to spend a little bit of time and, and read this resource that we're making available to you. Because what I think is going to happen is that between the preaching on Sunday morning and the supplemental reading from this book, Plus, going to your life group, many of you are in life groups, you're going to be studying this out together. And, and, and if you're not in a life group, we're still encouraging to grab one of those study guides and do it individually. We think cumulatively between all of those things, you're going to have a well-rounded knowledge of what the Bible says about wealth and income and our resources. We're going to understand how God sees these things. And I think you're going to be equipped to see them the same way as God does. That would be our hope. So today, we're going to start unpacking the second biblical principle, the principle of contentment. Then to do that, we're going to take a look at a guy in the Bible who completely bought into this myth of more. He bought into it hook, line, and sinker. He believed that the more that you can get, the happier you're going to be. The more that you can possess, then the more fulfilled you're going to be. He, he bought into that hook, line, and sinker, and, uh, and, and he ended up being a wasted person. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I preached a sermon called Chasing the Wind, and we started to unpack the life of Solomon. And if you remember from that sermon, Solomon, he had everything, yet his life was empty. He tried everything, yet he gained nothing. What I'd like for us to do this morning, I want us to go back and look at some more details of Solomon's life. Because at the end of his life, he concluded everything he was about was meaningless. He was like chasing after the wind. And there's more details to his story we haven't even looked at yet because we do know a lot about Solomon's life. And I want us to peel back a few more of those layers because when we do, it will reveal to us, it will begin to paint a picture for us of, of how God sees money, possessions, and, and wealth. So Solomon, Solomon, some have argued that even from the day of his birth, maybe the handwriting was on the wall that something was going to go wrong, that, that perhaps things weren't going to end up like everybody had planned. Now you may not realize this, maybe you never learned it or, or you learned it, you've forgotten, or maybe it's not something on your mind, we don't think about it a whole lot, but the name that Solomon received from his parents was never the name that he was supposed to have. 
When we read the fine print of the Bible, we learned very early that, that Solomon's parents, David, King David, and Bathsheba, they gave him the name Solomon, but that's not the name God wanted him to have. You got your Bibles open on your lap, and you've got 2 Samuel chapter 12 open. Look at verse 24. What does it say? It says that she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah. Jedediah. So here you have Nathan. He's a, he's a very familiar prophet to, to David and his family. And so, so God gives him a message. You go tell David and Bathsheba that his name's not supposed to be Solomon. His name is going to be Jedediah. And Jedediah means loved by the Lord. Now just think about that. If your name means loved by the Lord, can you imagine Bathsheba calling Jedediah to the dinner table? Jedediah, you who are loved by the Lord, it's time to come eat. There, Jedediah, it's time to put your toys away. and come. Can you imagine having that constant reminder every single day of your life when somebody says your name that you are loved by God? But for whatever reason, we don't know why, that name didn't stick. This is the last time we ever read uh, Solomon's name actually supposed to be Jedediah. His parents actually ended up calling him Solomon, which means peace. The Hebrew root word is shalom, meaning peace. It's a familiar word even to us today in English. And so it kind of changes things. Bathsheba calling Solomon to the dinner table. Hey, peace child. Hey, peaceful one. It's time to come eat. Well, that has a completely different ring to it. It doesn't quite have the same message, does it? You who are loved by God, it's time to come in. Now, I don't know if David and Bathsheba just didn't care for the name Jedediah or they just chose not to obey God on this one. We're not sure. But even regardless, God still loved Solomon, a.k.a. Jedediah, very much. He grew into a man, and he became the king over Israel. And God, in a dream, appeared to him. And many of you are aware of this part of his story. God says, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon said, I want wisdom. And God was so impressed with his request for wisdom that he gave uh, Solomon more wisdom than he could ever imagine. Plus, he gave him wealth and honor and distinction as well. Now, fast forward a little bit deeper into Solomon's reign as king. And, and you could describe his life. You, you could almost put a banner over his head that describes his life, and that banner would read, let the good times roll. That was his life. 1 Kings chapter 10 and 1 Kings chapter 11 gives us kind of a detailed description of letting the good times roll. It says that he had 666 talents of gold. That's the equivalent to 25 tons of gold just laying around. And now, I'm a guy that likes that show Gold Rush. Do you watch that on Discovery about the gold miners? I love that show. And, and so they're constantly weighing their gold out in ounces. So I thought, I'm not a mathematician, far from it. But how many ounces does it take to make 25 tons? And I, and I learned that that's about 800,000 ounces of gold. That's 25 tons. Now, today's price for gold, if you were to sell that much gold today um, at $1,224 an ounce, then if my math is correct, that's just shy of a billion bucks. So this was Solomon. He had like a billion bucks in today's numbers just laying around. He also had this, <coughs> hundreds of shields made of gold. 
He had a throne. You, you go back and read 1 Kings 10 and 11 sometime and just read the description of this throne. It was made of gold and ivory and it was something. His goblets, these cups, they're all made out of gold. Silver, interestingly enough, was of little value during Solomon's reign. They didn't see it as a valuable thing. Everything was gold. He had more than a thousand chariots and thousands of Egyptian horses. Solomon had a thousand wives, or you want to get technical, 700 wives, 300 concubines. All of them led his heart far from God. You read the description of all of Solomon's splendor there in, the, in 1 Kings 10 and 11, and people have concluded that you could sum up Solomon's entire life with these two words, and it would be wealth and women. Wealth and women. And here's the sad part. Solomon knew better. Everything we read about his life in Scripture tells us he should have known better. He wasn't ignorant. He was disobedient. Now you've got Deuteronomy chapter 17 open on your lap. Let, let's rewind this story 500 years, okay? Deuteronomy 17 takes us back 500 years, and we find ourselves back in the wilderness with the Israelites, and they're getting ready to take the promised land, and Moses is preparing them for this. Now, this is where we left off last week. Moses is out there. Moses knows he's not going to be able to go with them into the promised land, so he's getting them ready. And he gives these, these, these three or four farewell sermons to the Israelites. So Deuteronomy 17, starting verse 14, is one of these sermons. Listen to what Moses tells the people about one day wanting a king. He says this, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and have settled in, and you say, Let us set a king over us like the other nations around us. Now this is an interesting detail. This was not God's plan for them to have a king. God was going to be their king. That was always the plan. But Moses, knowing the hearts of people, he says, you're going to get there. It's going to be so wonderful. One day you're going to want a king. And he says, when that happens, verse 15, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, listen to this, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. The Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not acquire large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priest. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. How can you not think of Solomon when you read that description 500 years before? He's like, when you want a king? When you want a king, when that day comes, I'm telling you right now, he is to keep a scroll by his side. That scroll was a copy of the law. It would be very similar to if we were to say that uh, he's got to keep a copy of the Bible 
on his bedside table or on his throne every single day. It has to be available to him. He's supposed to read from it all the time. And if he will stick close to God's word, he's going to be successful. His kingdom will reign long after he's gone. That was the heart of what Moses was saying to him. The scroll would remind him, the law would remind him that he is not to acquire very many horses, especially from Egypt, strike one. That he's not to have a lot of wives, strike two. He's not supposed to possess and acquire massive amounts of gold and silver, strike three. And you would think that the wisest man to ever walk the planet other than Jesus would not be so ignorant. But it's not ignorance. That's not his problem. It's obedience. That's his problem. It was a rebellion towards God. And you know, if we're being honest, rarely is it ignorance in our lives either. It's disobedience. It's, it's, it's a rebellious spirit towards God. Well, we, we see that God absolutely, even though, even though Solomon was rebellious towards him, God kept his promise. And then we see that Solomon, a.k.a. Jedediah, at the end of his life, he writes what we have as the book of Ecclesiastes, and we looked at that a couple weeks ago. He admits, I tried wisdom, and that wasn't enough. I tried alcohol, and that didn't help. I tried to find fulfillment in just all the things that I could work for. That, that didn't do it for me. I amassed all kinds of wealth, and I never had enough of it. I had a harem of women, and I was so unsatisfied. He said, he admitted, I denied myself nothing that my eyes saw. And then at the very end of the letter, he says in chapter 5, verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough of it. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And there it is. Right there, black and white, in the pages of the Bible, the myth of more. That the more I have, the, the better I'll feel, the more I can get, then, then the, the more satisfied I'm going to be. Solomon right here not only identifies this myth for us, but he exemplified it for us with his very life. And he shows us that it's just a myth. The myth of more, yet we Believe it, even to this day, we buy into that myth, and it is a costly purchase. Scott Whitaker, excuse me, Jack Whitaker, uh, may not be a name that you're very familiar with, but if you're from Virginia, you might have heard of him. You see, Jack Whitaker, he won $315 million in the state's lottery. He was already a millionaire before this. He had a successful construction company that he had worked most of his life to build, and so he had retired very comfortably, but in one day, he became wealthy beyond his wildest dreams. He did give 10% of it to his home church as a tithe. He did give some of it away to help build some churches and around the area. He actually started a foundation that would help underprivileged kids in, near his community. But in the end, his 42-year marriage completely crumbled. He had $500,000 in cash stolen out of his car 
when it was parked at a strip club with him inside. After this, he got arrested for drunk driving. He became an alcoholic. He, he bought his 16-year-old granddaughter a very fast, souped-up car, and he would give her thousands of dollars all the time. It was reported that she would speed around town and people could see 20s and 50s and 100s flying out the windows. Whitaker's greatest loss was when the authorities found his granddaughter's body dead from a drug overdose. Buying into this myth can come at an incredible cost. This myth of more is so dangerous that if believe can take you down a path that, that you never imagined that we could go. That the truth is, and every statistic points to this, that most people in our land believe this myth. They believe that more is fulfilling. And the more you can acquire is more satisfying. Now think with me about a progression that is very easy to follow. And it's a progression that many people are on. Now, I'm not aware of anybody in our community or church who has 25 tons of gold. I don't know any billionaires. And if you're a billionaire, um, let's have coffee this week. I got some ideas I want to run by you. Kid. I don't know any billionaires. But there is a progression that many people are on, and you don't have to be a billionaire to be on it. It's a progression that many people ascribe to, and it's to work and work, to earn and earn so we can spend and spend, and when, if that's not enough, we can go get loans from our banks, and if that doesn't satisfy, we can take out many credit cards to fill in the gaps of this desire and this want for more. Many in our country are quick to sign the dotted line, and the bondage of debt that comes with it can be so overwhelming that a sense of hopelessness can set in. And it's, it's buying into this myth, the myth of more and living large in the moment comes at a great price and the reality of proverbs chapter 22 verse 7 is sinking in for many people in our land that the borrower is slave to the lender and i'm going to say something i think everybody in this room would probably agree with that god never intended for his children to live like that that was never in God's plan. You can go back and you can read from the very beginning of creation all the way through with his chosen people and the church. That was never God's plan to be that way. And so the question becomes, as a church family, how do we bust this myth of more? Because we're all susceptible to it. How do we bust this myth that the more things I can get and keep, the more fulfilled I'm going to be? Well, I think it's wrapped up in one single word, and I know it's going to come out extremely simplistic. There's no other way to say it. To bust this myth, we have to stop. We have to stop wanting. We have to stop wanting more. There comes a time in our lives when we have to stop getting and that's only going to happen when we learn to stop wanting. And so somebody say with me, easier said than done, Pastor. You can say that. Easier said than done. I admit it. If you're quick with your Bible, can you turn over to Philippians in the New Testament? I want to show you something that uh, if you've never read it, it's probably going to shed some light on this subject. Philippians chapter 4, 
It was written by the Apostle Paul. And listen to what he says, starting in verse 11. He says, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And man, you know what I hope I can be too one day. This is what Paul's saying. The conclusion is like, I've learned to be content. And then he says this in verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content, and in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me the strength. Some of your translations may say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. It's a very familiar verse in the Bible. Jump down a couple verses to verse 19. Paul concludes by saying this, and my God will meet all your needs according to his riches of the glory of Jesus Christ. Now this is going to mean something even more when you realize a few details behind what Paul is going through when he wrote it. Paul wrote these words from prison. I mean, he's sitting in a cell, a dark, ugly, dirty, stinky cell, and he's writing these words. We believe that Paul is around 60 years of age when he wrote this letter from behind bars. Now think about that. At age 60, it had been pretty common, I think, even in Paul's day, to be thinking about retirement. You know, maybe the thoughts of sleeping in a, a little bit more than usual, maybe catching a few extra rounds of golf or doing some traveling or, or just spending more time at the coffee shop with the fellas. I, I don't know. But Paul, here he is, chained up, this filthy dungeon of a cell, hot in the summer, cold in the winter, and most likely the rats was about his only company that he had. It would appear that Paul had so very little, yet to him, he says, I've got more than enough. How can he say something like that in that kind of situation? He says, I have learned to be content. In other words, I take that to mean that it just didn't happen automatically. I mean, contentment is something we have to learn. It's almost like you have to go into some training. And I think that's what Paul is, is talking about here. I've learned how to do it. I've learned the secret behind being content. And that secret, he sums up for us in this verse. I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. This verse is probably the most misquoted verse in the Bible. This is that one verse that is usually taken so far outside of context, we kind of lose sight of what it really means. This verse is specific to Paul's situation behind bars. He's like, here the secret of his contentment was the fact that he had Jesus Christ in his life. He's like, I I've learned that, that if all I've got is Jesus... That is enough for me. I, I'm content knowing that I at least have Jesus and I am going to be fine. I trust him. He's going to take care of my needs. And, and there's this sense that Paul has figured out how to jettison from himself all the trappings that come with this world. The trappings of materialism and the cancer of greed. And this idea that I've got to impress all these people by what I drive and how, what I wear and how, where I live. And it seems like he figured out, I've learned, he says, to be content no matter what my situation, and he, it's like the secret of it, is that I've got Jesus, and I'm content knowing that Jesus is with me. 
Mother Teresa is often the one credited with this quote. She said, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. See, Paul had surrendered his life to Jesus Christ years ago, years before this. And when he did that, it's the same way when we did it as well, that his way of measuring success radically changed. When he decided to follow Jesus, what he thought about and how he measured what success is, and all, that, that, that changed completely. And this man was rich in a spiritual sense. And when he was rich in a spiritual sense, then the physical riches took on a whole different meaning in his life. And it does for us as well. I think he made a deliberate and intentional decision to solely focus on Jesus, and that was going to be enough, and, and I'm wondering if we are there as well. Content. And at the very end there, he reminds the Christians who he's writing to, God will take care of you. God will take care of all of your needs. Now, he never says, and nowhere in the Bible does it say that God is going to give you all of your wants. I do believe God sometimes gives us our wants too, though. But he says, God will take care of your needs. Christ is enough. I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength to be content, to learn to be content. The, the secret is Jesus. And, and, and believing that, then, then know too that God will take care of your needs. Tell you, I think as Christians in America, something that we should always keep a close eye on is our wants and our needs. And acknowledging God is taking care of my needs. He never told me he's going to give me all my wants. But I'll tell you, if we don't buy into this myth of more, our needs are enough. You might remember this on September 8th, 2015, a British Airways jet caught fire um, on the tarmac at the Las Vegas airport. This Boeing 777 had suffered what the pilot called a catastrophic failure of the left engine, and it burst into flames, and the whole plane caught on fire, and people could see the smoke billowing up from this airplane for a long ways away. I mean, the pictures of this jetliner on fire are absolutely riveting. But it was interesting, as people started to exit the plane, and if you can imagine seeing this plane's on fire and people are trying to get out of there, there was an observation that was made by many people that were watching this. And the observation was this. It was probably the most startling thing in some people's minds, that people stopped during their evacuation to grab their luggage. Now, let me show you a picture. This is a picture, one of many pictures of people getting out of that plane that day, it's on fire, and they're all leaving with their bags. Now, I can tell you that authorities are certainly concerned about airplanes that would catch on fire, but they are also concerned that people would risk their lives for their stuff. Now, what's the big deal with grabbing a carry-on bag? I, you, know, like, you know, what's the big deal with that? Well, let me tell you something. As my understanding, the FAA... Uh, requires a plane of this size to be evacuated in 90 seconds. That's what they said. You should be able to get out in 90 seconds. Now, that's not 90 seconds with all your stuff. That's you getting out in the aisle and getting out of there, 90 seconds. 
There was a flight uh, air traffic controller who made this observation about what happened that day. He said, let's average it out. If, uh, if, if it's 90 seconds is how fast it's supposed to happen, let's say the average delay time is five seconds uh, per person who stops and gets their bag. That includes grabbing it out of the overhead compartment and the extra time it takes to, to carry it off the plane. If half of the 170 people on board flight 2276 that day took time to grab their stuff during evacuation, this 90-second evacuation time would have extended seven minutes. Taking seven minutes. Imagine if you were the last person on the plane to get off. And this, I should be out of here in 90 seconds, and all of a sudden, you can't get out because so many people are grabbing their stuff. Now, I'm not here to judge any of those people. I wasn't on that plane. I can't honestly tell you what my response would be other than to this. I'm not sure I'd have been carrying my bags out with me. I would have knocked over 27 people getting out of that plane that day. It's, there, there are privileges to being this size, I can tell you that. I would have plowed over everybody. But the observation that was made by the experts in this accident, people loved their carry-ons more than their very lives. In a moment of crisis, many have concluded from this example that people will risk their lives to save their possessions. And, and what is the other observation that has been so sad about this example is that people were so selfish, at least that's the evaluation, that they valued their possessions more than the other people's lives on the plane. What is that? Well, you could say, it's the myth of more. I can't live without this. I can't go on. I need to attend that bag. This bag's coming with me. And, and, and it gets translated more important than life. So let's bust, bust this myth of more, and let's stop wanting. Here's a second thing that, that I, I think we should consider. Um, I think we should stop working. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying go to your boss tomorrow and resign. That's not what I'm saying. And, and I'm not saying that, uh, that you should be lazy. That's not what I mean. You'll understand what I mean here in just a second. I'm talking about stop working more hours so that you can earn more money so you can continue to buy more things. We're a driven culture. We're, Americans are hard-working people. But do you know that right now, the latest statistic that I read, that 85% of U.S. men and 66% of U.S. women work more than 40 hours a week, more, work more than that. That is uh, 1,000 more hours than Japanese people work on average. That's a... Uh, 250 more hours a year than British people. It's 500 more hours a year than Germans. Statistics show that, that American workers, they work longer hours, they take less vacations, they retire years later than their counterparts in other nations. And you just ask the question, why do we do that? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, but the one that stands out to me is that we measure success on what we have and the never-ending cycle of working, earning, spending, buying, borrowing. It just never stops. And I think God wants us to stop that. 
I would take you to Genesis chapter 2. You don't need to turn there, but I'm just going to tell you something. I'm going to read a couple verses from there. God created everything, and the Bible says that on the seventh day he rested. It says this in chapter 2, verse 1, that the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God rested. There's a Hebrew word, and it's, uh, it's called Sabbath, and it's, the, it's where we get the, the word Sabbath. It means to rest. It means to stop working. It, that's the simplest terms. It means pause for a minute. Some people read Genesis, and they immediately think, well, God was tired. I remember a Sunday school te- teacher when I was just a little kid, and they said, well, you know, you'd be tired too, kids, if you had done all that creating for six straight days. You'd need to take a break too. And I remember as a little kid thinking, that doesn't sound right. I didn't know God got tired. And then I found Psalm 121, where it says, God does not sleep, and God does not slumber. No, God didn't need a break. God didn't need uh, to be rejuvenated. That's not why he took a break. It means that he paused. He sat back. He enjoyed what he had created with his very own hands. It was the goodness of his creation that he took a day to just look at it. I think it would be similar to a gardener who sits in their garden, like grabs their lawn chair and sits in their garden and admires everything in bloom. Is there any gardeners in here? They enjoy the garden, the things, uh, the, the vegetables ripening on the vine, um, the, the smells of the garden. It'd be like the gardener sitting there going, I love this. The gardener's not tired. The gardener is appreciating. It would be like a carpenter who had just finished this masterpiece, this hand-built, crafted um, furniture that, that he or she had made out of wood. And it's all polished up and it's beautiful. And the carpenter just sits back and takes some time to enjoy what he has created. That's kind of like what God was doing. So God set apart a day, and his day of rest set the example that should be ingrained in every single person that takes some time for some R&R, some time of resting, some time of reflecting. There was a day where they were to do this, and they were to worship, and they were to focus on God one day out of the week. We're not good at that sometimes. And I wonder, why are we not good at that? Could it be because we've bought into this myth to work and work and work and earn and earn and earn so we can spend and spend and spend so we can gather, gather, gather and have, have and have? I'll end with this. I, a while back, I was trying to make an online purchase um, from a company and I had gone through their website and I'd filled up the cart with the things that I wanted and when I went to checkout, I hit the checkout button to pay for this stuff and I got a pop-up on my screen at that exact moment. And I don't remember the exact words of this pop-up, but it essentially said this, that today is the Sabbath and many of our employees are taking their day of rest, taking their Sabbath, and so you will need to complete your order tomorrow. And I'm like, say what? What, that's not how this works. I'm making an online purchase. What, what do you mean that you're not going to process my order until tomorrow? And I was curious about this. So I, I kind of researched this out. What, who does this? Well, uh, the company I was trying to order from was from a company called B&H Photo. It is the largest non-chain 
photo and video equipment store in America, second largest in the world. They do have a store that's located on 9th Avenue in New York uh, City, and their owners of this store, along with many of their employees, are Hadistic Jews, which means they still honor the Sabbath, and they're the, the, the Jewish that interpret where they wear clothes that are very similar to what was worn in 1800s Europe. They've just never changed, okay? So many of the owners and, and, and the employees are from that faith. So their store, it, it it's, does about 30% of their business. The other 70% of their business is all done online, and it's backed up by this 200,000-square-foot warehouse in Brooklyn that supplies all of the orders. And it's, it's a very competitive marketplace, but they've chosen to not do business on the Sabbath. So on Friday at 1 p.m., they close their store. And they are closed all day Saturday, which is the busiest shopping day of the week. Their website, you can go through and you can search and you can shop but they are not going to process an order. They're not going to take your payment. They're not going to fulfill an order on the Sabbath. It has to wait till the very next day. I was intrigued by this. And somebody asked the communications director of B&H Photo one time here recently, why do you guys do that? How can you afford to be closed on the busiest day? And how can you afford to be closed on Black Friday? Now that Thanksgiving's coming up. And I love the response of the director of the communications office, he said this, we respond to a higher authority. Do we? Do we respond to a higher authority? If we want to bust this myth of more, we have to respond to a higher authority whose name is God. And there are times when we need to sit and we need to be still and we need to stop what we're doing and praise our Heavenly Father for what He has given to us. We need to stop working, we need to stop wanting and bask in the glory of our Heavenly Father. And like what Paul says, learn to be content in all circumstances. Can I pray for you?